Welcome to the Anime Research Group. With so much anime produced each season, many interesting shows just slip through the cracks and don't get the fair hearing they deserve. I'm Ian. I'm Denny. I'm Freya. And each week we get together to give one show its chance. Watch the first few episodes and discuss what we thought of it. This week, Galaxy Express 999. Yeah, I think it's definitely the oldest show we've talked about on this podcast. It ran from September 14th, 1978 until March 26th, 1981 for a total of 113 episodes. That's a lot. It was made by Toei Animation, like one of the classic giants of Japanese uh, afternoon anime, responsible for Dragon Ball, One Piece, Digimon, Gekigen no Kitaro, Sailor Moon, Devilman. So many shows. Like Toei Animation is probably one of the more most prolific studios around just because all of their shows run for so many episodes. Oh, it's also like one of the originals. It was... Uh... Yeah, yeah, and, and was founded in the 1940s. The anime is based on a manga series by Leiji Matsumoto, famous for other shows such as Space Battleship Yamato or Space Captain Harlock, that ran for 18 volumes from 1977 until 1981. In turn, his manga was inspired partially uh, by, a no- by a very famous Japanese novel called Night on the Galactic Railroad by Kenji Miyazawa, which was published posthumously in 1934. Like, Machimoto has talked a lot about how he came up with the concept for Galaxy Express 999. Some of the things it was based on is a 24-hour journey he undertook when he was young, where he moved to Tokyo as it was easier to work directly from there rather than sending in his manuscript to the mail. Uh, but more, what I'd say is probably more important was the literal journey he undertook after Space Battleship Yamato. Yamato was originally supposed to last from 51 episodes, but due to reasons, it got cut down to a total of 26 episodes and cancelled. So Matsumoto was a bit down and he decided to just travel the world a bit. He took a trip to Africa and he recounts in an interview that will be linked in the description how he saw the nightscapes in Africa unpolluted by all the light and how he kind of really had a living in the moment type of realization that it's not really important what came before and what comes after it's important to be here now after that he really traveled all over the world from the source of the amazon to machu picchu moscow paris to grand canyon he really saw it all he he recounts this journey in the inside interview and and i quote I was asked why an oriental person would wander around downtown all night, and I was mistaken for a terrorist. I had a beard and looked suspicious. I was arrested in Peru, India, Africa, and the Netherlands. But my treatment changed completely when I answered that I was a manga artist. They lifted their prohibition on photography and showed me back to showed me the back rooms of their museum. Then I understood that manga is universal and the world is actually calm and broad-minded towards a manga artist. So he kind of <laughs> traveled all over the world to to kind of collect stories from all over it, see sites. And he really worked all of that into his manga, which, and in turn the anime, which is about going to so many different places and just seeing them, experiencing them, and then moving on. Like Galaxy Express 909 shares uh, the same universe as his other works, called the Lejiverse, because of course it is. There are also three other films based on the material, two OVAs, one more TV show. Uh, there were four video games, although none of them ever made it to the West. The anime itself was directed by Nobutaka Nishizawa, and on that note, Freya? Yeah, so Nobutaka Nishizawa is mm, probably the oldest uh, director we've had on this. Uh, he passed away in 2015, 
He didn't direct anything after 2001, his last series being Nono-chan. He's done a lot of kids' shows and films. In terms of other famous stuff he's done, did an adaptation of Dragon Quest in the 90s. He directed a Messenger Z film. I think the only thing of his that I have seen is legendary gambler Tetsuya. (laughs) Yes, and uh, gambler Densetsu Tetsuya. But the most famous other thing he's done is uh, Slam Dunk in, ni- in 1993 and its compilation film. I uh, can't really find anything about him uh, outside of that, so moving on. We don't have a uh, series composer this week because I think this 70s pre- uh, might predate <laughs> that position. Instead... There were three writers who wrote the uh, scripts for all of these episodes, and unfortunately, it was a different one for each episode, so I'm going to have to talk about all of them. Hiroyasu Yamaura wrote episode one. Uh, He's not done much, and is probably also uh, dead, unfortunately. Uh, In terms of other stuff, he wrote two of the uh, Space Runaway Idion movies. Is Idion famous? It is one of Tomiyuki's more well-known works besides Gundam, but I don't think it's famous in like a larger context outside of the people who care about Mecha. Outside of that, the most interesting thing he wrote is, uh, or did work on, is Vampire, which is a um, combined live-action animated uh, TV show based on an original story by Osamu Tezuka, so I put it on my list immediately after. <laughs> that. that sounds interesting. Then episode two was written by uh, Kesuke Fujiwara, who's definitely the most prolific of uh, the three writers. He also wrote 58 of the 110 episodes, yes. Um, So some stuff he's worked on, uh, Aim for the Best, Armored Fleet, Die Rigger, Submarine Super 99, Transformers, The Headmasters, You'll notice the theme here is that these are old and also things that nobody has heard of, heard of or cares about anymore. Uh, except for Moomin. He wrote episodes for Moomin, and Moomin is very important. <laughs> and then episode three was written by Yoshiaki Yoshida. In terms of interesting stuff they've worked on, uh, Heidi, a girl of the Alps. Oh man, I used to see that so much on German TV growing up. Like that, that was that together with Vicky was one of Vicky the Viking was one of the shows that ran constantly. Fables of the Green Forest, uh, episodes of Dog of Flanders. It's probably the most famous thing here. They also worked on Moomin. Music was done by Nozomi Aoki, whose other famous soundtrack is for Fist of the North Star. Uh, but he also wrote the music for... Uh, <laughs> he wrote the theme song for Swiss Family Robinson. He wrote the music for a film called Harmageddon, a Huckleberry Finn story called uh, Huckleberry no Boken, because, of course, there's an anime of that. I also want to mention that Luigi Matsumoto worked on the Interstellar 5555, the um, movie that's a, a long music video for a Daft Punk album. Because it's so old, there's, uh, I couldn't find too much on most of these people, unfortunately. Obviously, there's a lot of material on uh, Luigi Matsumoto out there, but I think Denny's uh, going to cover most of that. Let's move on to the episode descriptions. Well, episode one is called Departure Ballad. Whenever we have an episode one, it's got a few things to do. It's got to introduce us to our characters, put them together, and give us a basic idea about what the world's like and what the fuck's going on. So <laughs> let's answer those questions. Our main character is 
a soon-to-be orphan, spoilers, I guess. Mm-hmm. We're living in a, I mean, it would be wrong to call it like a 1950s sci-fi um, world, although it's got a lot of your classic uh, sci-fi stuff. You know, tubes that transport you from one building to another. Flying self-driving cars. Escalators everywhere. But it's got more, it's got a little bit of a twist to it because there is this sort of under to use Warhammer 40k terminology, uh, which is where like all the slums are and all the people there are like naked and emaciated. Look like cave people the way the anime presents it. I think cave people would be better fed than these people. I, I think there's a uh, cl- like there's a sort of class metaphor that should be going on, but isn't. <laughs> but for our main character Tetsuro, well, one of our two main characters, him and his mother are being hunted through this wilderness by a robot in a musketeer's outfit riding a horse. <laughs> this is our episode one villain, uh, Count Mecha. He is hunting the most dangerous game. An orphan and his mother. Then Bambi's mother gets shot. <laughs> Quite. He does actually uh, shoot Tetsuro's mother. Kind of just leaves Tetsuro, I guess. The the idea is being like he's going to die anyway. Uh, seemed a bit pointless to me. And the mother, uh, as she dies, uh, he tells him that he has to go on and go to the planet Andromeda where he can get a machine body and not die like she did. Because in this society... Basically, if you if you can afford it, you can gain pseudo-immortality by abandoning your human body and gaining a mechanized body. This is one of the important themes that they're going to keep coming back to, is the uh, distinction between the people who are made of flesh and the people who are made of metal, I guess. Uh, Tetsuro passes out, uh, but he gets rescued by our secondary main character, our secondary character, Mattel, who seems to know who he is and gives him a pass to the Galaxy Express 999, uh, provided that he travels with her. Seems kind of shady to me, but I mean, I was taught not to trust strangers as a child. But he agrees, but he's like not willing to just sort of lie there. He has to go and get revenge for his mother. Uh, and so he takes a gun and goes to shoot up Count Mecca's mansion. <laughs> he ruins a nice party that Count Mecca is having with his robot buddies. They're all drinking oil and having a good time. And then after he... There's not even there's not a big fight scene or anything. He just gets in, just shoots them and leaves. But the the police uh, are arriving. They're hot on his on his tail on sort of buggies chasing him through. Like they set the hounds on him and everything. It's great. And he has to get rescued by Mattel. They decide to hide out in a hotel in Megalopolis and wait for the heat to die down. And then there's a bit of a chase through Megalopolis as they get to the 999. Uh, and that's sort of where the episode leaves off. I'd say it's it's not a terrible first episode, but half of it is original. Like, when you look at the manga chapter, after he burns down Count Mecha's house, Mytel is just there with the sled and they leave, and then at the beginning of the next ep- chapter, they're just on the Galaxy Express already. Whereas here, we have this whole second half of the episode where they have to flee from the police, hide out in the hotel, all the stuff that Ian's described. And we get introduced to some uh, shady stuff going on with Maytel because she gets a call from a mysterious person while she's in the shower and Tetsuro hears it and she convinces him he's just there hearing things. Yeah, it works fairly well as an adaptation. Uh, some of the things they've done is when Tetsuro's mother is dying, initially that's where she talks all about the planet Andromeda, the free body, the Galaxy Express. 
Whereas in the anime, they chose to give it to the narrator, who is like probably the third most recurring character in the entire show. So it makes sense to give him all of the exposition at the beginning and to set up the world through that. Other things they've done is in Count Mecha's house, rather than having Tetsuru's mother literally hanging up on the wall, skinned and stuffed, they've decided to not do that because that might be slightly traumatizing. I think we can accept that omission. <laughs> yes. Is the whole Undercity slum in the manga chapter? Uh, yes, yes it is, but I don't think it's in quite the same amount of detail. It just gets okay. mentioned. This definitely feels like they had later material to set up in the second half of this episode. Mm-hmm. As you've said, we, we kind of get a little bit about each of our two main characters. It is very refreshing to have the murderer of one's mother be not the primary antagonist, but just some guy who's once done uh, over and done with by the end of the episode. Yeah, that was a little subversive. <laughs> that would not happen today. I mean, it's the sort of thing where I, I don't know that he would necessarily, like, he wouldn't make it the entire arc for Tetsuro, because mm-hmm. he already has one. But it's definitely the sort of thing where they would meet him on another world, and that's where you have the big showdown. The major omission for me is that I don't really feel that there is really a good reason for Mattel and Tetsuro to get together, as it will. Uh, I guess as a kid, he's more trusting than an adult would be. If some strange lady just offers you a train ticket when you wake up from your passing out after seeing your mother die. I'd say it's that, but it's also just a a kind of narrative necessity in that you need to have him traveling with somebody who is a little bit more aware of everything to give us our exposition, really. She's our exposition machine. I mean, she's deliberately slotting into the mother figure role as well for him. Mm -hmm. Like that, yeah. that was that was Matsumoto's deliberate choice. Um, yeah, he states in an interview that Maotel starts with meta. The etymology of mother transition is meta, meter, Maotel, and mother. So it's it's definitely a deliberate thing he's doing because it's Matsumoto. So the argument that the mother and Maotel look similar could just be because that's the way Matsumoto draws. 99% of his female characters. Tall, yes. with long blonde hairs, slightly skinny, probably some mm. kind of su- supernatural power or strength. Sad, sad, drooping eyes. Yes, exactly. Like It's it's the same design we see in um, Space Battleship Yamato for... Um, All of the female characters in Space Battleship Yamato. Yeah. yeah. Right, but... I'm I'm gonna come back to this question once we're done talking of like all three, things, but I'm not really convinced that this show actually requires the mother to die. I feel like it's just a lol tragic backstory equals depth moment rather than it being narratively necess- uh, narrative necessity. Probably, but it is also a good impetus to set him on a journey of, oh, this was my mother's dying wish, I definitely need to do this to get my metal body. Because the arc is obviously going to be, on all three episodes we see, oh, having a metal body isn't all it's cracked up to be. Oh man, I wish I was human again. And if, if, his, if there wasn't a really strong driving force of, this was what my mother wanted for me, the realization that maybe that's not such a good idea might set in much, much earlier. Well, well I'm tr- I was trying to like save this discussion for the uh, for afterwards, but I completely disagree with it. Okay, <laughs> it's it it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> 
But why? I don't really buy that he needs to have this impetus to go on a journey by himself. He could have went on a journey with his mother and experienced many of the same things. And Leiji Matsumoto could make the same stupid points about death every episode that he does. Having the mother die doesn't really add anything to it. Especially if you're just going to then substitute it for a separate mother figure who portray who functions in pretty much the exact same way. Yeah, I guess the anime wouldn't have really changed if you just started with Mayatel and Tetsuba on the run and they made yeah. it to the, to the Express. That's really his style. It's, it's tragic heroes. So, moving on to episode two, The Red Winds of Mars. The Three Nines' first stop is Mars, which m- makes sense because it's the closest planet to Earth. Uh, and Mars is a barren wasteland of a planet, much like it is in 2020. So they're traveling on the on the train, and as far as we can tell, they're basically the only passengers at this point. We get some weird discussions uh, about like some of the privileges that seem to come with being on the three nine, which is he just gets a bag of money. <laughs> you see, if you buy a ticket for the uh, the train, you get UBI while you're on the train. And here's your free complimentary Wi Fi voucher. They have their stopover at Mars. This is only going to be like a a one day, maybe even like an evening. Uh, Metal doesn't uh, accompany him off the train for whatever reasons, but she does instruct him to take his gun when he goes out. And so he wanders around the ghost town uh, until eventually getting invited in for a Mars soda by a garden gnome of a man uh, <laughs> who runs a bar of sorts. So he pays for his drink with one of these gold coins humble bragging that he has lots of them. Uh, and they chat a little bit. Uh, like, for instance, the, we learn that the, the man has a, robot le- has a robot leg, but only his right leg. And of course, Tetsuro's like, you should go to the planet of free mechanical bodies, because that's what I'm doing. <laughs> the old man convinces him to take a tour. It's going to be provided by a younger woman, uh, his daughter, Freme. And she takes him to... What, as far as we can tell, is the only site, which is a masquerade. While there, her boyfriend, Geronimo, tries to rob Tetsuro and steal his pass onto the, the three nine. But the standoff goes poorly. Geronimo shoots Tetsuro. And then Freme and Geronimo have their, like, but I have to leave. And it's like, but I don't want you to leave, scene. She ends up pulling a gun on him, but he shoots her. And then Tetsuro has been deus ex machina out of death by the money in his coat and shoots Geronimo. Very, very Wild West. Mm. Tetsuro like, learns like both of them had uh, machine bodies but are going to accept their death. Uh, and one of the things Geronimo points out is that like uh, he was upset, actually, that he shot Tetsuro because Tetsuro doesn't have a machine body. And then Tetsuro heads back to the train. The ghosts dance about talking about how Death is going to be great, and so on. All in all, it was a strange episode. <laughs> That's because it was just a Wild West movie that happened to take place in the space uh, space opera anime. I thought this was the best episode of the three. I agree. Because yes. it had the most congruence between uh, <laughs> the aesthetics and the themes. We use the imagery of a Wild West ghost town where everybody's either left or dead. And the few remaining people are uh, either desperate to leave or waiting to die. They comment on 
a capitalist future where uh, everyone's dreams are dying and uh, it's difficult to attain. No, no, no. The, the real commentary on the capitalist future is coming next episode. Yeah, but that was shit. <laughs> it, did, it did a good job at establishing a real sense of hopelessness and despair yes. and just wanting to get out of here. But particularly using that imagery to uh, to like get it across is... I mean, it's a fa- it's a framework that a lot of people would have had in <laughs> the seventies. It's it's the image of the the old wild west, the the dying yeah. west, the the last of the cowboys wanting to leave, and the civil war era mass grave. Mm-hmm. So, like, I mean, as much as I kind of gave this episode a bit of shtick while we were watching it for basically being a TV tropes page <laughs> of an episode, actually, this one was kind of interesting uh that we i feel like we got a little bit of this in the last episode but we're getting it a lot more in this episode is uh perhaps not intentionally leji matamzimo's views of class because we have tetsuro like offering just an entire bag of money to this guy who i don't remember we got named i will call him garden uh barkeep (laughs) and then and then the barkeep is just uh, gives him shit for basically acting like a Nova Reach uh, little prick. And <laughs> I mean, you made that sound way more aggressive than he actually is. But <laughs> yeah, no. But his his entire complaint is just like, well, uh, I don't need this money, and anyway, you're a bad, you're bad for treating your money so like carelessly. He doesn't even seem to accept that the kid's trying to do like a nice thing for him, and that the kid doesn't care about the, this money, and mm-hmm. it would do, do a lot for fixing up his body. Because he only has uh, one mechanical, like that was all he could afford when he tried to replace his yeah. own body. And now he's kind of stuck as this half-hybrid, continually suffering because it's really uncomfortable. Uh, I know this is in the 70s, but it's not a good view of uh, people with artificial limbs. <laughs> No, no, but once again, that has to do with the Japanese view on body purity and like the importance of the soul. The class divide is sort of uh, realized in the discrepancy between people who are uh, fully human, which are the lower class people, and the mm-hmm. people who are upper class uh, by comparison, who are more and more cyborg. Uh, and the more cyborg you are, Presumably, the higher you are, the yeah. richer you are, because then you get to live forever. If you can afford to continue replacing the parts. Like, the, the most uh, cyborg guy we've met is a literal count. But while his, um, like, the basic premise of this show is you want to be upper class, because you want to be, you want to get your robot body and live forever. Uh, at the same time, there's a sort of meat chauvinism about it. When Geronimo uh, shoots him and he's like, Oh my god, I can't believe I shot you. You're actually a human. It's just like this is the rich person saying, like, isn't it great to be poor because you have a, a human body? Yeah. And then the old man at the end is just getting philosophical and being like, Man, I feel sorry for people who don't die at the right time. I think that plays well into what uh, Matsumoto was trying to achieve, because he calls it an anti-war, anti-victimization narrative. Uh, regarding World War Two, with the with the Japanese, because the Japanese at the after World War Two they played themselves as victims of the regime, is what he says. A lot, a lot of the times in media they represent to put all the blame on the government, on the um, militarists faction, and only being the victims of a horrific event of uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So <laughs> the article that we both read. Um... <laughs> 
stipulates that uh, it's their own victimhood, ignoring the victimhood of uh, of others. Of well, in particular, victims of Japanese imperialism in East yeah. Asia. So I think that ties in quite well about the duplicity you were talking about. How Geronimo, as a member of the upper class, in his robot body, he's positing himself as the victim. He said that it reminded you very much of a stereotypical Western in pretty much every beat. And I think that primarily comes from Matsumoto's love of um, of movies. Thus, he'd probably have been very familiar uh, with like the classic Western type film that would have been around at the time this was being made. Yeah. That probably heavily inspired this storyline. All right, so now that we've covered all the themes for our 8th grade book report, uh, we can move on to episode 3. The Resting Warriors on Titan. Mm. Of course, we have to move to Titan after Mars because that <laughs> is a sci-fi trope we need to take off. Mattel and Tetsuro on the train. They take a wander through it. Uh, and Tetsuro kind of comments uh, when they get into the disco room uh, about how the train doesn't seem to require like an engineer. And there's like, where's the engine? I mean, it's a steam engine, so it's presumably right at the front. Uh, but I digress. When their curiosity is satisfied, they go to the dining car. And this is where we're going to get introduced to Crystal Claire, uh, who is the waitress on the 999. Because there are only two character designs in the show. Well, there are three character designs in this show. We have our third take on the mother character, only this time naked and made of glass. She serves them. They have a meal and stuff. And then everything sort of goes dark as they travel through. I think it's called the Tunnel of Hearts. And this concerns Tetsuro because, of course, there's no light and stuff. And so Claire decides to become the lamp, and then she's just this glowing lava girl <laughs> type deal. Uh, Mattel makes some sort of like excuse to like go back uh, to where they're staying, and Claire is going to be the one to take Tetsuro back. And she like grabs, uh, well, she doesn't grab. She touches his hand and is like, oh, I've never touched a real body before, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, and as they're going back through, Tetsuro is surprised because he sees his mother on the train. Of course, it's not his actual mother, it's a hilarious monster. A skeleton. It's Satan. Uh, like, my own idea is that he is like a stoner Scooby-Doo monster skeleton. <laughs> I find him hilarious. But he tries to, like, pull Tetsuro out of the train, and Claire decides to sacrifice herself, uh, being shattered, in order to protect Tetsuro from the monster. This is actually another example of the meat chauvinism, because we get the, if I can protect someone with a real body, I'm willing to. Tetsuro wakes up again after having passed out at some point, thus repeating the scene from the first one. Him and Mattel see there's a sort of a glowing crystal stuff floating by on the outside, and that's because... Uh, Claire's body is being released by the conductor. Like, this is usually a part where you would get, like, grief, but there's no grief in this show. <laughs> uh, and besides, they're going to need to get a gun and be prepared for the layover in Titan, which seems suspicious, because when we see Titan, it's like this very nice neoclassical-looking place. But while they arrive, someone gets shot right in front of them, no one gives a shit, and then Metal gets captured by the army group. <laughs> Because they've come to every libertarian's uh, dream, I suppose. The world of the purge. <laughs> yes, no. the uh, anarcho-capitalist, but very yeah. pretty hell. 
Tetsuro is tranquilized and for the second time this episode gets woken up by a woman. This time it's another, uh, an old woman who has a sort of your witchy character design. She tells him about how freedom is like the only thing people give a shit about here and then sets him off with a gun and a log boat to go and rescue Mattel. He travels down the river, uh, a giant beetle attacks him. Apparently, <laughs> there's an insect equivalent of falconry. Yeah, he gets there, and he doesn't even need to save Mattel, because uh, although she is lying uh, half-naked, uh, everyone around her is also uh, knocked out. And so they're able to get back with essentially no issue. Then the episode ends with like the old woman telling how some people just don't understand freedom, which is, I guess, That's... one lesson you could take from this. It's definitely the worst of the three episodes, I'd say. Uh, the thing is that this episode really struggles because it fits into disjoint plot points and they both suffer f- for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there were two separate chapters in the manga. So if we just took like the first part uh, about this glass lady and about how... Uh, I don't think I mentioned it, but her body was apparently like forced upon her by her mother and she wants to get her original one back. Mm-hmm. Thus continuing this meat chauvinism. Like there would actually maybe be some sort of repercussion for like how for like why this monster is on the train and why he is trying to lure a child out of the window into space. It's just a hallucination. A space hallucination. But yeah, like the Claire part was definitely the stronger part of the episode because even even in the manga, the second half, uh, the, that chapter just doesn't really work because Tetsu is just on the planet. Uh, the Mytel just get kidnapped, gets a gun, kills the people who kidnapped her, and then they just leave. And the wafflings about freedom don't really work. It just doesn't work as a as a great as a as a as a story with beginning, middle, and end. Of uh, since there are no rule, the only rule is that there are no rules, and that just doesn't make for a great story. It's not a it's not a realistic understanding of uh, how uh, anarchist societies work, anyway. But there you go. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> it doesn't need to be. It was all. It was just a bad story. <laughs> At least for episode two, we can understand the motive. We can understand the motivations of Geronimo. He's after this ticket so that he can go away and earn some money to bring the rest of the people off world, blah, 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 blah. And it's thematically mm-hmm. congruent with the show. <laughs> For this, I already complained about Spooky Skeleton Guy, but the same thing happens in a narco-capitalist world. Why did they shoot the guy? Radical freedom. Why did they kidnap <laughs> Mattel and uh, tranquilize uh, Tetsuro? Radical freedom. Why did this old lady help Tetsuro? Radical freedom. It's an it's a non sequitur of an episode. <laughs> the point about freedom could have definitely like it definitely could have been made better in another story. Rather than one where he gets on a boat and fights some dudes, finds Metal having killed all of them. Now don't get me wrong, I'm happy that Metal is the one who had killed them because there's no way that Tetsuro was competent enough in spite of his several murders. It's off screen and uh, she's in her underwear when he finds her. So it's not it's not great. Yeah, that's the th- we've talked about all the episodes now and we've pretty much bitched about the themes. 
like I just get the the feeling that Leiji Matsumoto has a death obsession because it's all about everyone is dead or is killing people. Well, the thing about it is, since he grew up um, under Imperial Japan during World War Two, he he kind of works that in with the often oppressive government powers or oppressive forces that are kind of that are keeping everybody else down. So in this case, like the the upper class, and this, the characters are forced to really really struggle because. It's it all, it's all about the tragedy and um, how you need to suffer and pay a, a, a serious price to overcome things. Like if you remember, the same thing kind of happened in Yamato, where Kodai had no Kodai didn't have to die, but forget her Yamato, and that somebody had to die to to resolve the whole situation and give the give life back to the planet Earth. That stuff about the oppressive government sounds great, but that wasn't in any of these episodes. Yes, really. yeah, there there was no class struggle. There was yeah. class envy. In the mm-hmm. Tetsuro wants to become a robot that lives forever, and the people who can live forever wish they were meatbags. But there's no genuine class struggle. I also don't think the like victimhood thing really came up. I, I know what you said about the second episode, but to me, Geronimo uh, read more as someone who tried to succeed within the system and uh, failed because it's inherently unfair. Yeah, I, de- I definitely think the the anti-war, anti-victimization thing. Having read like how the whole story ends and how it all turns out, that's definitely more towards the proper enemy of the show and the final destinations and stuff like that. There, that definitely seems to play out in a much more natural and obvious way. But otherwise, I, I agree with your reading of him more as a semi-tragic figure who tried and failed, and now is stuck. So what you're saying is we should have watched the movie instead. <laughs> probably, probably. So I, I would like to talk a little bit about the animation, if we can, because having recently watched uh, the original Gundam, which came out at about the same time, I was actually quite impressed with this because it looks a lot better, uh, especially some of the shots of the train when we see the train engines moving, like Geronimo, the way he handles the gun. Uh, it does a surprisingly good job of picking its shots and the way they're composed. They, they never had like a, a really odd shot that stood out to me. Uh, and the coloring was very different on each of the planets, which allowed them to tell a, the story through colors. Earth, well, most of what we saw of it was in a lot of blues and uh, a lot of snow, so it managed to create a very cold feeling. Mars sickly, yeah. sickly green for the under, where the, where the poor people live. Yes, Mars was a lot of red sand, and there was continuous dust. There was always wind blowing, which... So some good sound, we'll probably talk about that in a bit. Uh, that match can really convey the kind of rusted down feeling. Everything's old and kind of broken. And being blown away in the desert. Yeah, and then episode three, the final planet. That one didn't really work because it was kind of this weird... Where, uh, Ian, as Ian's described it, like the buildings are really nice, but then... There's giant grass and uh, flowers in the background. Like, and Tetsu is really tiny compared to them. Uh, but the sky is purple, and maybe because it's Titan, and we don't really have a, a we don't really know what Titan probably looked ba- looked like back then. So that's what kind of just what he imagined. And maybe we're going into weirder color schemes the further we get away from established planets. I mean, the point of the green, I think, is to try and give us a utopian vision of this. Like the old woman uh, who looks like a witch basically lives in Rivendell. I think that's supposed to tie in thematically with the the like utopian ideals of like 
ah, uh, this is a this is a planet where the only rule is that you can't impinge on someone else's freedom. Isn't that so great? But in in a world of radical freedom, who is doing the gardening? The like neoclassical Fre- uh, French slash Greek architecture might be referenced to people like Voltaire and all those Enlightenment philosophers. They're all obsessed with freedom. The shot selection was like the main thing that stuck out to me as a as being really well done. I, I guess that's I guess that's down to Nishizawa then. Uh, let me see who storyboarded these episodes, and I can tell you. Well, Nishizawa storyboarded episode one, so he's responsible for the shot choices basically. And uh, somebody else did episode two, and I can't find who did three. Hmm. Episode two kind of has also my favorite shot because after. Uh, Geronimo and Frem have both died. We have this really nice scene where they get covered by sand, like it slowly blows over them with some music playing in the background. It's a shame it's yellow sand instead of red sand for Mars, but but it was still it's still it was still effective. I mean, I liked how most of the shots on the uh, the mass grave look, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And there are some good stills of it. If we're actually going to make a comparison for this anime, we. I mean, it's almost crass to compare it to, like, a 2021. Uh, <sighs> yes. Like, we, but we could compare it to, say, how we felt about Rose of Versailles. I did, there definitely did seem to be, like, some positive takes uh, over, like, how Rose of Versailles did it. Uh, yeah. We didn't get nearly as much of the, like, still characters in the background uh, not doing anything while the main characters do shit. <laughs> it's definitely got no characters in the background. Yeah, which is which is one way to do it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we got a little bit in uh, episode three, but I mean, I kind of liked how there was nobody else on the train, to be honest, because it it, so it reinforced the whole like oh, this this dream is fucking dead. Nobody <laughs> nobody can do this anymore. Nobody can get on this expensive train. I also kind of assume that people are going to start showing up uh, on the train because that kind of then goes back to Night on the Galactic Railroad, which is a story about two boys who find themselves on a train traveling through space. And initially they're alone, but then random people just start showing up and they have various little stories with them. And, and then they end up in Christian heaven and one of the boys comes back to Earth. It's a very religious story. We've talked a lot about the fact that he has very limited character designs he has the mattel design he has the uh cave boy design which is tetsuro and he's got the harlock design which we only saw in geronimo because harlock won't appear for like 30 episodes but if you don't know what harlock is it's tall slender looking guy with uh, brown hair and it's like an emo fringe that flicks upwards it's uh, <laughs> it's quite interesting one of the things that I did notice, and maybe it was just because the characters were so simple, is how much of the time is spent in three quarters profile. I was I was joking about like how like Family Guy, like you have the characters that only look sensible three quarters on, and when you see like the the like face on, they look ridiculous and even in profile. And I I, I got that a little bit, and like because I don't think people got in better at drawing people mm. like mm. face on. <laughs> But I guess if you haven't spent a lot of time like designing characters for animation, you're probably and you've just drawn on storyboards. You're like, well, this makes sense, and they like only later do you realize your character doesn't make. And I think actually uh, that's part of the real job of a character designer in uh, anime these days, right? It's not you're you're not designing anime. You're not designing the characters from scratch because 
it tends to be two different positions. So you have the original character designer who comes up with the character designs, and then you have the uh, usually the chief animation director who this uh, gets them, changes them to work better for animation. Right, but the, it's weird because for a lot of modern stuff, we're adapting from a manga, but people still have like a character designer position, right? Yeah, that's. Then in that case, it's usually just they've credited the person specifically for adapting it for animation. Okay, so like visuals aside, how about the sound? How do how are we feeling about that? I like the music, but I think as Freya has uh, pointed pointed out during the episode. The sound effects were odd at times. Uh, they were mixed back. The train ones were generally reasonably well done. Yes. But I feel like the music really managed to get a feeling of, of melancholy and like grandness across, which is necessary. I feel like when you're back in space and you're looking down on the planet, you've just got the woman singing. Sometimes. Yeah, the songs with the uh, solo... Uh vocalist worked well but there was some uh, I think Ian pointed out a lot there was some pretty silly musical cues in the third episode like there was this this one that really stuck out to me which is when they arrived back at Rivendell it, I, can't, I can't tell you what the name of it is but I've heard it like a million times uh, and everyone who's seen this definitely has as well but mm-hmm. the one that always got to me was Dream Piano you know the one where like your hands are moving up and down the the keyboard, just usually just the white yeah. keys. But the... So many times, that and the laser got me every time. My main flaw from the music point of view was that I actually think the mix was very bad. Uh, yeah. the, the, the audio for the music was very loud, whereas the characters were much quieter. I know when we watched it, I would have to adjust the volume when the opening started playing versus when the narrator started talking. And I had to do that a few times while we were watching it. And if I have to adjust the volume manually, you've mixed it wrong. People, people might put this down to being a product of its time. Uh, Rosalind I didn't really have any problems with this, did it? No, not that I remember. I don't think so. I don't. I don't know what it was. It was. It was. It was wrong. <laughs> so the opening and the ending are both done by the same people uh, mm. this time. It's. Uh, Isao Sasaki and the Suganami Children's Choir. Uh, Isao Sasaki, as I pointed out when we were listening to this, is the guy who sings the opening uh, to Space Battleship Yamato. Which, Hand on Your Heart, is a great opening. Cla- an all-time classic. He's got a decent singing voice. He's got the like the classic Japanese sort of crooner. We're not going like Enka, but we're definitely crooner style. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the opening to the first one was just Ginga Tetsudo Suvinai. And the imagery that we get is just the 999 launching into space. Uh, it, it goes down the Milky Way, and then we get a bunch of trains. So I guess there are multiple of these uh, space railways, because they all sort of fly in formation. Yes, we also see one of them at the beginning of the first episode. We see the 333. Like the Yamato opening, it starts off with the um, sort of sound effects of the train starting up. I think it, I think it actually works better here, just because the train has nicer sounds <laughs> well it's because we know what train sounds like we don't really know what our space battleship sounds like yeah i'll contrast this with the ending this one's aoi chikyu so that's blue earth 
this one they've went for very subdued. It's just stills of like Mattel watching Tetsuro sleep, the pale blue dot, Tetsuro staring out into space. Mm. I feel bad for uh, Mattel. All she's doing is like looking out into the mid distance. <laughs> the entire ending. It was kind of uninspiring, but I, I, I did, I did enjoy the fact that the opening included its own karaoke. Like instead of having to get that from the subtitles, you could just see it. Uh, that was that was a nice touch. I, I wish more anime did that. So now that we've rambled aimlessly about this show for about half an hour, uh, Denny, how many Mars sodas would you give this out of five? 2.5 is what I'll give this show. It's fine. We've talked a lot about uh, the designs and how the themes didn't really work all that well for most of the episodes we saw. But with 113 episodes left, there's a lot of room for improvement and themes to play out well, especially since they're mostly going to be switching from planet to planet each episode. Even if we have an episode where the story doesn't work, we simply move on to the next episode and maybe have a story like episode two there that does work. On the visual side, I was mostly happy with it, but it aged better than some other things. However, I just wasn't that entertained by it. Uh, it struggled to keep my attention at points. I found myself drifting off or looking away. Like I think the manga did a better job there because it didn't have to stretch itself uh, to fill 20-minute gaps so I could just read through it. So I think 2.5, it's, it's a solid show, but I don't think I'll be watching more of it. If, if I were to watch any 100-episode show, I'll definitely watch Legend of the Galactic Heroes. How about you, Ian? The, I think a lot of our lack, my lack of enjoyment from this show comes from the fact that this is a show for children in the 1970s. <laughs> I am neither of those things. I am a sophisticated consumer of science fiction. <laughs> uh... As such, I have seen every take he has done much better elsewhere. I enjoyed episode two. I will never watch any more of this show. I'm going to give it a two, if only because I think I could write an interesting book report about this, but I've got nothing else to say about it. All right. How about you, Freya? Yeah, I don't think the themes really came across very well in uh, two out of three episodes, so let's uh, mark it down by default. Uh, it wasn't particularly visually interesting, except for in episode two, and the visuals didn't really support what it was trying to go for, but that's part of why the themes didn't work. Uh, characters were... Tetra was kind of boring. Maytel's got to have all of her interesting stuff later, it sounds like, so that's annoying. I like her hat. The train's cool. But that's just because trains in general are cool. I mean, I'm more in love with the idea of trains as efficient transport than trains as machinery in and of themselves, but that's beside the point. Um, two. All right, Denny, do you have any uh, interesting facts for us this week? Uh, I've got two this week. One, do you remember Ico, Freya? I do remember Ico. It was the first game by Fumito Ueda, the man behind Shadow of the Colossus and The Last Guardian. He has cited this show as an influence on um, Aiko's uh, relationship with, uh, with, the, with the girl he asked to escort. And he kind of took inspiration from the whole uh, Maetel and Tetsuro traveling together for his game. Second is the origin of the number 999 which comes from a real-life train, the Empire State Express number 999, which was the first vehicle on wheels to actually reach a speed over 100 kilometers per hour. So, uh, now that we've made the worst episode of this podcast so far... Um, Almost certain. What will we be watching next week, Denny? 
Well, after last week's experimental anime and this week's classic anime, I think it's time we go back to my staple, Shonen Trash. Next week, we'll be watching Buso Rankin. Ah, oh, good. I get to hear you two. I get to hear you two talk about the opening again. Wonderful. We are the Anime Research Group, a weekly podcast coming out every Thursday. If you'd like to tell us what you thought of the episode or suggest something for future episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at research underscore anime or drop us an email at researchanime at gmail.com. Thank you.